Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And this week's New Statesman podcast, The Kids Are Alt-Right. It's alt-right on the night. Uh, also, Anoush, the Anoushmobile has fired up again and has gone to Copeland, one of the other by-elections that's happening this week. And Pauline joins us to talk about what's going on in the French elections. Is it Macron? Is it Le Pen? They're both having rallies. Let's see who's best. So, Stephen, I know this is probably not your um, area of enjoyment in talking about politics, but I did want to talk about this because I think it's an interesting phenomenon. So I've known about this guy, Miley Yiannopoulos, for now five years. Uh, he used to be a tech blogger at The Telegraph and then founded a site of his own called The Colonel. And he was deeply unpleasant to a couple of people that I, I knew um, and effectively kind of used to sort of slut shame them. He um, hold up, hold up. wages. So... Um I imagine I, like a lot of people, have been having a kind of semi-deliberate veil of ignorance about who this Milo character is. You know when you, like, see something like, you know, like a Brendan O'Neill spectator piece, and it's like, if I click on this, it will make me deeply angry. You know the Onion thing about the alt-right when it's like, views, why ruin your day by getting into this? So, for, for people like me, explain... But your, I find that your attitude, I mean, not your attitude specifically, but I find that particular attitude in relation to this story really annoying. So you're not, uh, it's, it's, an, it's sad for you that you've wandered into the gun sites of this general irritation, but I have had so many men being like, oh my God, like, uh, why are we even just talking about this guy? And, 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 I feel, and I'm sure there are other subjects where this dynamic applies to you, definitely, but I can't avoid this, right? I, by writing as a feminist online, I'm going to attract the attention of guys like this. So I can't just duck out of it. So it presses like a little squirt of my irritation gland goes off when people say that. This is not your fault. Generally, you know, as men go, you, you're right. But what I mean is, who is he? I get how okay, he so kind he, of, he started, he, a... he started wiping up the, yeah, but like, basically explain what, how he became because he's not he explain how it happened no one can explain how it happened because what happened basically was we waved goodbye to this guy as he moved across the atlantic a couple of years ago having been this sort of failed tech blogger um and having kind of not paid all his employees on this tech site which then got sold to some germans and then got sold to the daily dot and he then turned up sort of out of the blue again um as tech editor of breitbart i don't you know i mean this guy was not reviewing 
Apple watches with any great regularity. Mostly he was becoming kind of internet culture writer. And he used that platform to turn himself into the kind of figurehead of the alt-right. He wrote, he wrote a guide to the alt-right, which is um, kind of generally seen as being almost like its manifesto, really. Um, and therefore he got lots of bookings. He came on stuff. He did a whole... Um, he harassed the Ghostbusters actor, Leslie Jones. And like his followers were sending her pictures of her as like an ape or her covered as in semen and stuff like that. Basically just because, you know, she reacted I think basically well he was annoyed about the concept of a female Ghostbusters as a kind of outgrowth of the Gamergate annoyance about there being more women in video games and then she responded a bit to it and and kind of showed that she actually was there reading her Twitter account which then meant that that was an excuse for everybody then to send her loads of waves of abuse because they thought it would upset her and and she would see them Um, so he kind of turned himself into this quote-unquote provocateur figure in the mould of let's be honest Brendan O'Neill James Dellingpole Rod Little, um, but considerably more extreme because he's, you know, he didn't, he, the only person he had to get it past was the editor on Breitbart, really, rather than, you know, anyone in more of a mainstream role. But um, he then went on a speaking tour, which was called the Dangerous Faggot Tour. Uh, and like the kind of things that he would say would be, you know, he claimed lesbians and made up hate crime statistics or that, you know, um, he, he talked a lot about being kind of self-hating gay man and actually how he didn't like, I think when he said preening puffs, um, he's talked a lot about how he thinks transgender people are, have got psycho, psychotic disorders and he, there's all kinds of talk about him outing somebody, uh, uh, you know, encouraging people to laugh at this person at a talk that he did. So he sort of turned himself into an all-purpose kind of hate figure. And I agree with you that I have a problem with the ideas that you have to engage, you know, because you actually just think, God, I wish we could starve this person of oxygen of, well, oxygen, if but oxygen of publicity, really, and they will go away. But that doesn't kind of work somehow. Well, I think so, because my introduction to him was your uh, profile slash hit job of him a couple of weeks ago, which has had this weird afterlife. Then obviously two weeks ago, it was making a lot of gamergators very angry for being critical. Weirdly, as far as I can tell, some people feel the stand first was not sufficiently mean about him. And so many people became very angry about it not being critical about him after. But my, what I find strange about it, right, is James Dellingpole, Brendan O'Neill, they have a credibility with people on the hard right because they believe this stuff. What I am mystified by is that this, this guy is a fraud, right? Like, he basically failed in the UK and decided to rebrand himself as a far-right yeah, when Gamergate happened, right, he started doing these tweets about like, hey, kids, like, I've never played games before. Like, why don't you tell me which ones are good? And the whole sort of genesis of Gamergate was supposed to be this idea that actually people didn't really care about the games, you know, and actually all these um, developers and journalists were kind of in collusions and they were defrauding the fans. And you were like, well, in what way is this guy the champion of video games fans when he's there on 4chan going, recommend me some games to play, guys? So, yeah, I think that's a really interesting outcrop of the phenomenon which is that and this is my thesis about it is that we need to look at this populist right as an outcrop as outriders for the mainstream right um because so jan werner muller who wrote a book on populism wrote a great piece for the ft in which he argued that trump and farage had to be seen as people who were boosted right not as these kind of great grassroots movement avatars who are you know in sweeping the world in a domino effect but everywhere that the populist right has flourished it has been used by people who are much more mainstream and i think that's exactly the same in the case of milo as it is in the case of nigel farage and i find nigel farage as a figure now fascinating because he is this kind of like lonely crusty guy and i think he felt particularly during the eu referendum 
referendum campaign suddenly very kind of betrayed because he was used to mainstream conservatives, um, you know, boosting him because they used him as a kind of useful way to try and get David Cameron into a referendum. And then he was suddenly like left out in the cold. And so he's now had this downfall because, and this is the other thing I don't understand. So it was, it was, it was publicly, so he was invited to speak at, uh, CPAC, which is like the gathering of the 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 maddest of the mad American right wingers. One of their panel debates this time is if if heaven has a wall and a gate, why shouldn't America? A I'm wall not and making gate that and up. an extreme vetting policy. That's yeah. my favourite thing. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm not I'm not making this up or, or gilding that Lou. That is that is legit what it says. And he was invited because he has a legitimate perspective and free speech. It then, and this is where I again am confused because. He'd already in the past said it was A-OK for adults to sleep with 13-year-olds. Well, this is what's really interesting about it. So, yeah, CPAP. But, you know, you say it's fringe, but, you know, Carl Rove has been to it. Ronald but I'm Reagan's. a snobbish European, right? They're all fringe. They're all... Yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. They're not a centre-right party. The US has one centre-right party, the Democrats, with a couple of Blairites who, apparently because they're old... We're like, oh, they're, they're like the great hope of the far left now. And then like a party of, as far as I can tell, dangerous and evil people who want to destroy the world. And every eight years, half of America goes, sure, why not? They haven't killed us yet. This is my yeah. understanding of American politics. No, I, no, which I largely agree with, because that's the interesting thing about the whole uh, alternate media in America. It has is so extreme. You want to talk about people who are in a bubble? Like there is not. It's not. I wouldn't worry about the liberal bubble in America. I would worry about the right wing media bubble. You know, people who get all their news from talk radio or Fox News, including, let's be honest, probably Donald Trump, who seems to tweet about stuff that's on Fox News like ten minutes later. Then occasionally reads the New York Times and gets very angry that it's like that his two realities kind of don't match up. But yeah, so comments resurfaced from a 2015 YouTube stream uh, in which, you know, um, Marley Yiannopoulos joked about the fact that he gave such good head because of Father Michael, like having been abused as a kid or whatever. Um, and that he, you know, he thought that the consent was a set, age of consent was a grey area, uh, which, right, okay, so here's the thing. I, being a feminist, I'm extremely hot on the concept of consent and the age of consent, but Actually, there have been people who've made similar arguments to that about whether or not relationships between two people who are both teenagers are actually over-criminalised, for example. Um, and you can end up in America on the sex offenders registry if, you know, you're 17 and your girlfriend's 15, which is not necessarily, it's like a slight over. So there are interesting conversations to be had about exactly how you treat those, those situations, but the fact that this was the kind of line for everybody, someone making a joke about their own experience and talking about the age of consent um, is is kind of a fascinating one. I mean, I've read a couple of different uh, explanations for why it was this rather than anything else that kind of got people going. One of them is a kind of, um, is this a kind of a, a homophobic thing that actually it plays into a narrative that's very popular on particularly the conservative Christian right that, you know, gay people are all paedophiles actually. Um, and therefore that was particularly a kind of hot topic for him. Uh, I think that's true. The feminist uh, conclusion is, well, maybe actually we only care about um, sexual abuse when it's happening to kids because there's no way you can say that they deserved it, right? They didn't wear a short skirt. They weren't out late at night. You know, they weren't asking for it in whatever way. So I don't, I, I mean, I, I think it's one of those things where he just became, you know, too too hot to handle but he his book deal has been KO'd he's left Breitbart and he uh, he gave a press conference in which he said he was setting up a new media venture so this is the thing the trouble is though he it's if it's not him it will be someone I think that's why I, I agree with you in the sense you could opt out of, of learning about him particularly but he fills a void right so Piers Morgan fills a void Katie Hopkins fills a void 
Um, and I was thinking last night, where are those, who is the Katie Hopkins of the left? There's a title you don't want to ever actually accidentally get called. But the, the, the left doesn't quite do that in the same way. That doesn't have those kind of outriders in the same way. Well, I think, I mean, my instinct is the reason why the left doesn't have outriders is the whole of the left from kind of your sort of like centrist Blairites to like, you know, the furthest reaches of, of the far left loves condemning the bits of the left to either side of it. Like, the whole point of having an outrider is what you're meant to do, um, and actually Blair's Brexit speech is a great example, right? So he's coming out, he's already, um, you know, disliked by a large number of people, going, if this works out badly, we, we can undo it at a later election, we can have another referendum, this doesn't have to be forever. And obviously the, the thing that would happen if he was on the right is you'd have, like, the rest of the right would go, well, we don't agree with everything, but, you know... Isn't there an interesting debate to be had? You know, so we see it with Trump going, oh, there's a problem in Sweden, right? Trump just inventing an just going, oh, this awful incident which happened in Sweden. There was no incident in Sweden. Mm. But then you have, you know, wow, this apparently is a week in which I throw shade at the spectator a lot. You, then you have, like, the spectator writing a piece going, yeah, okay, so so that there wasn't an incident, but there are problems in Sweden. Maybe Sweden is a... a de-. And they kind of do this weird thing where they... They they, they see this was factually inaccurate. Or but he's raised an important point. Yeah, and that is exactly how I think the dynamic works. Which is that you and Nigel Farage has been on the case this morning as well, saying, "Oh my God, actually there are so many. There was a massive spike in reported rapes in Sweden, and the people have gone. Well, actually, if you look at the data, one of the things that Sweden does is it records anything that's you know that even if the, the prosecution doesn't go forward, it records it as a crime. Whereas other countries like here, you don't. And actually, we think 6% of reported rapes end in conviction. There is an attrition all the way through the process. So you can't compare, you know, if people change their methods of recording crime data, you can't suddenly do that. But that you're right. What happens is someone says something wacko and, and provably untrue, and everybody else uses it as an excuse to go and go, no, but there is an issue here, isn't there? Um, I think that doesn't quite happen so much in the same way. In the, and I think Ed Miliband was some... I remember there was a whole thing about Ed Miliband not having any outriders. Jeremy Corbyn really does not have any outriders, right? I think that makes it difficult for you as a politician because if there aren't people on your flank saying crazier things, you can't look moderate in comparison to them. Yeah, I mean, also... Yeah, and again, I'm aware this is something I've said multiple times, but the Trump Corbyn thing is pro- provides a really fascinating example of that, right? Because on the one hand, you have the actual president of the United States with actual power who has been very woolly on Russia, NATO, the Western order, etc., etc. On the other hand, you have a guy who, to put it bluntly, polls an average of 28 to 24%. You know, regularly bottom of the pile as far as to who do you see as a prime minister below you know don't know and the bloke next to me while i was taking this poll and yet every time he says something even something which is fairly reasonable which is we would in an ideal world like it if there were not british soldiers on the russian border because that's a fairly scary situation to be in even when he does that people like oh you know the serious threat to security posed by jeremy corbyn um so it is partly the the left plays on a higher difficulty setting, but we do also make it more difficult for ourselves. Even internally, the left makes it more difficult for itself. You know, the, the reverse example is Owen Jones kind of doing this kind of thing of going, sharing like the polls and going, this has to be taken seriously. Now, obviously, there is a lot of, in my view, fair enough anger uh, in the leader's office that they feel he's been going around shilling for Clive Lewis. 
But you see all of these people on the centre left who also would like Jeremy to go. Instead of like retweeting, it was like, yes, we need to do something about it, going, well, it's your fault. You crashed the car into the wall. Um, do you know that's really funny because you mentioned the people getting cross about my Milo piece, right? Because which the headline, because it was written for the magazine, it was, you know, the chameleon who enthralled the alt right, and it was how he became a hero to a generation of angry young men. And right, neither of those things are good things, right? If you enthrall the alt right, like, unless you are the alt right, that, that does not involve you being enthralled by it. But there was that. And then I also got attacked for pointing out that he had, you know, before he was even really started on his Twitter attacks, that he had attacked, like, female peers um, uh, in the tech scene. And there was a really undignified bundle to be the one who was most attacked by him or, like, the one who had been calling him out longest and been ignored, um, which maybe I played into. But that was... that. It wasn't... There was almost as much interest in claiming the credit for his downfall or claiming that you'd been ignored and you'd been pointing out these problems for a really long time as there was in talking about him having kind of been brought down, which I think is a particularly left-wing trap that they, they're, they just fall into, right? Is looking at the process rather than the outcome, not just being happy that the thing that you wanted to happen has happened. Yeah, I mean, you say it a lot with these awful letters than... EU nationals are now getting for home office, which obviously has been the reality for anyone living in Britain who does not come from the EU for a very, very long time. And there has been a general failure to expand and win consent for a more humane uh, border policy in, in Britain, right? However, it really mithers me when people go, oh, you've only just noticed this is a problem. It's just like, yes, that's a failure of the person who's only noticed, but it is also a failure of of persuasion on our part, right? Mm. And it, it's not... But also, when people turn up to a thing having just noticed a thing, the thing to do is not immediately bollock them for not having turned up sooner, right? That's not... In strategic terms, I mean, it might be very therapeutic from you, for you, but it's not strategically the way to win people over to your side. Uh, anyway, that's... Uh, I guess that's the only time we ever need to talk about him on the podcast. You'll be pleased to know I won't make you do it again. And now we are joined from France. I mean, not immediately from France, but in a roundabout way from France via the New York Times and various other institutions by our social media editor, Pauline, uh, to talk about the French elections. Hi. Hello, Pauline. Let's start off by talking to the fact you went this week to the Emmanuel Macron uh, rally. You and Nick, and I'm going to say you went with Nick Clegg, which sounds like you and Nick Clegg had a, a, a date, but that's I sadly wish. not true. But he was there, uh, as were 2,000... French-speaking people? Yes, 2,000 and I think 500 even. Did he mention any policies that he might have? Macron? Mm-hmm. Um, it was very blurry, actually. He tried to say that he was pro-Europe and that he wanted more liberalism, though with some protections in it. And he just lost himself in the middle of the speech. It was really long. All the, I was with, with other journalists and, and uh, the guy from... Um, a newspaper in France, I can't remember which one, just left at, before the end. He was, it, it lasted almost an hour and a half. And before that, because he arrived like a rock star, and there was one full minute when he was just walking along the stage and, say, and saying hello to everyone. And, so, and, and even before that, two different people had talked for at least half an hour. It was, it, it was never ending. And he, he mentioned policies, but then he lost himself into like very specific uh technical questions about judiciary in france and 
even people, even French people living in the UK don't care that much. Even people in France don't care that much for it to listen to it for mm. an hour. So, but this and, is in a the end, problem, it was, isn't it? Is that he's kind of Mr. Charisma. This is the idea: is that he might not have a particularly great policy platform, but he's got on Marsh, he's got his movement, and he's got this kind of he's. Attra- apparently he's what passes for attractive now in a politician in France sorry no shade to France but you know I, this is one of the things I find strange and even I in, in my morning email uh, yeah always refer to him as something like fit centrist Emmanuel Macron or hunky centrist but there's the weird thing there's this meme that he's very attractive but I actually think if you were rating the French presidential candidates or in order of bangability I, <laughs> I he definitely would not get into the top two. He would not make the runoff. I like Amul much better. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, obviously, the fact that he is teeny tiny and you could fit him in your pocket, it makes him less attractive when you remember that he is, is even in a country of smaller-than-average politicians. Uh, I, uh, this is one of the things I find weird, weird, is, right, in Britain, politicians are taller than the average uh, British person. In France, politicians are shorter than the average person. I feel this... this, this, this probably explains Brexit, but I don't know how. That's interesting, because almost every time that in a presidential race, I think in recent memory, the US presidential race, the taller candidate has won, which again held true this time with Trump over um, yeah. over Hujima Flip. I um, think not for John Kerry, though, because John Kerry was very tall and yet did not win. Um, so, yeah, so Hamon won. I think, of the list. Oh, so we're about to bang we about to So yeah. Pauline's like, looked a bit excited then, as if we might be about to discuss French politics again, we'll rather get than Stephen's, <laughs> Stephen's... Stephen's immense thirst. But um, <laughs> um, well, Who's number two? I, I definitely wouldn't say that Marine Le Pen or Mélenchon could top... Or actually Fillon, so that that, that makes him. No, that makes think, sorry, and that makes Macron second. I, think, I actually think Fillon is actually kind of... No. In a kind of... You can imagine him like... Is it? Is it what? Is it the money? That's yeah. I mean, attractive. yeah. The fact that he it's might pay me a million pounds as his wife to do nothing, <laughs> and then my favourite aspect of this hilarious and also terrifying scandal, because it might make Marine Le Pen president, is that he paid redundant. His his wife was given redundancy payments as well as, as well as else. well as being paid, and the redundancy payments were larger than the average redundancy payment. It's thing. It's not just the corruption. It's at every stage. Like it's like a light bulb. Just like Fion, do you? you really want to be this guy? And he's gone, I actually would love to be this guy. But I think he's kind of attractive in a sort of like, you can imagine him being like the attractive, like elderly farmer in an olive oil commercial. You know, like, you know, kind of winking at like a, having like a thing with Helen Mirren in a movie. Really not. Okay, well, yeah. I really don't see that. But yeah, Macron's not that attractive. But I I see what you mean about the fuel. I mean, being attractive as like two voters, as as a politician, not... um, man yeah. um will be more generally because so um macron is trying to define himself as the the maverick and the anti uh, conventional um candidate and in in that sense yesterday night he talked about fion and he mentioned how fion fion's defense was basically i'm doing something that may be wrong but everyone else was doing it so i didn't realize it was wrong that's what he said at his press conference that is not, well, i tell you what when the mps in britain did that in the 2008 2009 expenses scandal tell, let me tell you that did not work out well for them but there is a a more well actually one of the kind of interesting historical political science question is it's 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 seen as more survivable in france to go oh, well, I did it. So at one point he was saying to 
to journalists, oh, you know, like, you should just be go, go and do your job instead of hounding me with this nonsense story, which you wouldn't have got away with during the expenses scandal here. Right. However, there's always been a fairly large anti-system vote in the French system, right? And so you kind of go, oh, well, there are no consequences apart from this massive anti-establishment and now active fascist growth. So maybe there are political consequences for just going, lol, corruption. Can I ask but- a question about um, family stuff? So Macron is married to his former teacher, right, yes. who is much older than him. Is there a Mr. Marine Le Pen? Is there a Monsieur Le Pen? No, um, he wouldn't be Le Pen, would he? Is, I'm not sure she's married, actually, but she is. she's definitely been dating for a while. Uh, Louis Alliot, who's also in the FN, and he, um, he's, he'd be a second beast if Florian Philippot, who's much younger and not dating Marine Le Pen, was, um, wasn't much louder and, and um, a better voice, I'd say, as well. So he's, um, he's not very vocal, but he's there and he's, and he's been there for a while. I think he was there already when Jean-Marie Le Pen, Marine's father, was leader. In terms of this rally, obviously you were quite bored with it. Were the people in the you know the the the, what did the punters make of it uh they were not bored uh he mentioned he he, well he mentioned several things but um he was talking about management the most boring thing ever and everyone was cheering every everything he said it's like it was kind of a guru thing really that um that's uh what everyone's saying in france and um he had these tones of voice of, of voice and whenever he would go down everyone would cheer and and that was really it he would cheer people would cheer what whatever he'd be saying at some point i was just like people are cheering about management that that, that is so weird even in france that's the is. radical center for you um you also <laughs> went to um a front national rally in metz yes right, in did. alsace on the um it's Nil- Lorraine, well, but it's really close to alsace yeah, yeah close so, to the german border um how was that because you met some quite a lot of young fn supporters i did yes i, I did um meet young supporters at the macron rally as well uh, that was most of the staff actually but it was very different from the fn uh, rally because um at the fn rally it was a lot smaller as well it was not that in such a big room but um fn supporters in 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 france tended not to be that young and now lots of people especially in, in Metz which is eastern France um, do vote for the FN and they have many reasons I met this uh, lesbian couple who um, are maybe tw- in their 20s they live in France they work in Luxembourg they often go shopping in Germany and yet they vote for the FN and want to get out of the EU and I was talking to them and I just couldn't understand it was it was just mainly political distrust uh, one of the girl's mothers she was telling me uh, that she also she used to vote for uh, the communists and then she became um, a supporter of Sarkozy and now she's at the FN so it's just not knowing where to go really and some some others were uh, former socialists also really young so they were socialists when they were even younger and yet um, they couldn't find any real reason to hope in the socialist party which I kind of see and then they just went straight to the FN so the FN tends to be the place where you go when you've when you either you're either you're angry or you just you're just done with everyone else. We talked about this before, about the kind of weird phenomenon of the Lib Dem UKIP switcher, right, in right. Britain, which is people who just definitely want to vote for someone that they don't think is going to win. I've just realised that if you got married to Benoit Hamel, your name, you could be like the Hamon Bushes. We could, yeah, that is... That's a really that cool portmanteau surname. Anyway, so... A missed um, opportunity. The interesting thing in terms of that type of voter is that there, there will be 
And there always are people who vote for the, the Front National in the first round and don't in the second because they've had their kind of like, I've, 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 I've kicked the machine, but I don't actually want to. And one of the fascinating things for electoral systems nerds like me is if you didn't have the instant runoff, the kind of the two round system, the top two in terms of who people's second preferences would be would actually probably be Macron and Hamill, right? But would they also be more likely to give a second preference to Le Pen if it was on one day and you didn't have the right now I'm going to protest this week and be serious next week? It's a fascinating hypothesis. So is your theory that a runoff with a final two and like definitely one of those, you're, like this is your choice between two, is much better than a transferable vote system where someone that everybody put number two can end up kind of creeping... Up. I think it sort of depends on what you mean by better, right? So I, I think it, it's worse in a way in the, the 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 bulk of French voters are going to vote for a party to the centre-left or to the left. And it is highly likely that at best they will get someone from the centre in. And depending on... Actually, the things I want to ask you about, Pauline, this, this dip he's seen in... Uh, Macron's seen in his numbers after his sort of gaffes last week. Oh, do yeah. you think then he will recover those numbers or do you think he's going to come third now? I think it'll depend what happens next in, in, in the campaign special with Fillon because uh, Fillon's scandal is not done uh, whatsoever. They have... Uh, the police have actually said that they will not close the case without... Um, any uh, followings so he's definitely not done and um, seeing what happens to him um, may help or not help Macron though I think and and he was really vocal last night about being sincere and being inexperienced and and how in his view it was a good thing because he was different from all the others who've been here forever uh, still uh, talking about Algeria when you are trying to seduce French voters and when some of them vote like thought that some others opposed it and you kind of want to talk to both is a really bad idea and it was really naive of him to to just talk about the subject though he played it as if he was really brave to mention it well we probably that's what we've got time for but we hope that you will return because there's what it's not until the first week of may the uh yes second week? round is the 7th of may yeah so we've got plenty of exciting weeks so um can you join us back again in the podcast bunker for more sure. french politics i would love to thank you 
either side will win, then they're probably lying because voters were honestly teetering on the edge of Labour or Tory or just not voting at all. That's really interesting because the betting markets are quite strongly favouring the Conservatives, which is further evidence for the thesis that using the betting markets as any kind of predictor of behaviour is a total bust that no one should ever do again. Yeah, I think the bet- the bookies are saying the Tories are the favourites. I think that's mainly because the Tories are doing so well in the national polls and I think they're probably led a bit by that. Um, having said that, lots of the people who I did speak to were like, oh, the Tories are supposed to be the favourites here, aren't they? But I can't imagine the Tories ever holding Copeland. We've always been Labour. So I suppose it could have a little bit of an influence if it's being reported that the Conservatives are a favourite, but that influence could turn it either way. Yeah. One of the things I thought was really interesting, so you wrote a piece from there, is actually the kind of ambivalence that people felt about um, Sellafield and uh, and nuclear, right? We've had this narrative drummed into us that, oh my God, uh, Jeremy Corbyn hates nuclear power and has been really meanly mad about it and this is electoral poison. Yeah, so it's interesting because the Tory campaign has been focusing on Jeremy Corbyn's ambivalence towards nuclear power. And um, also Jamie Reid, who was the Labour MP there, who resigned to, to get a job at Sellafield, which is the nuclear power station there. He also sort of says that it's the heart of Copeland. But everyone who I spoke to, inc- uh, mainly people who actually work there or have worked there, were saying, well, you know, it, it is the main employer. It brings a lot of money here, but it's not Copeland. Um, it's nothing to do with it's nothing to do with the identity of the place. Rather, it's sort of like a necessary evil. I also wonder if there's a thing in that where actually Jeremy Corbyn's poor standing in the polls is helping him because no one thinks that Jeremy Corbyn is going to get into government and close down Sellafield, right? So it's kind of a... Also, yeah, yeah I think in general, people know the difference between a, a by-election and a general election. Um, and they kind of know that if there's a Labour MP, it does not make the closure of those plants any more or less likely. And I think the interesting thing will be whether or not Labour have succeeded in their message about whether or not it makes the closure of West Cumberland Hospital like more likely. And in the safe space of the podcast, can I have a what is apparently a really controversial opinion, right? Yeah. So Labour have got this poster going, you know, if, 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 if the Tories win, babies will die, babies will be born prematurely, people will die mm. because of the potential closure of West Cumberland Hospital. I mean, the nearest hospital will be two hours' drive away. Babies will die. People will be born. Oh, I, spoke, just, I spoke to Tory voters there and they said people will lose their lives if yeah, they, if they close those, those things. Where, it's not controversial. It just don't those, you yeah. think that's faux outrage that's whipped up by the Tories in order to try and get yeah. that off the table? To yeah. go, how dare Labour say this? Because actually, fundamentally, they just think it's shit, it's really effective. Exactly. I mean, their candidate has the same view as the Labour candidate, which is we really need to rescue these services. So I imagine that their candidate, Trudy Harrison, was probably a, a little bit peeved when Theresa May came on her campaign visit and didn't um, guarantee uh, rescuing the hospital and the services there that they're so worried about losing um, because well, all of the candidates have to say I mean it's, it's the biggest issue in Copeland so they all have to say that they would like to rescue rescue the services at that hospital so it's not that controversial to say that people will lose their lives over it having said that one of the Tories line of a, lines of attack now is that the person who can most influence Theresa May's decision on that hospital is a Tory MP rather than a Labour MP. I mean, Jamie Reid was a shadow health minister. I mean, he was a front bencher and he didn't seem to be able to do much about it. So why would Gillian Troughton, who is Labour's candidate, be able to do anything when she gets... So it doesn't work it. when you look at Lewisham, the campaign to save Lewisham Hospital, though, does it really, which happened under a Conservative government? It doesn't work at all, really, because it would mean the constituency giving the green light to Tory health cuts if they voted for a Tory candidate but that is one of their one of their arguments I mean, 
Sorry, I think the other thing I think is really interesting is I think um, people seem to be acknowledging that Labour actually, in terms of their ground campaign, have run a good ground campaign. In co- like it's been focused, like the messaging's been pretty tight, right? Yeah, I mean, Andrew Gwynn, who, who, who ran this campaign, ran Oldham, is now half of the election coordinator. I don't quite know how this split will work, but my assumption is he will do the logistics because he is rated very highly for doing that well, but he did not vote for Jeremy Corbyn either time and he's not in that inner circle. And Ian Lavery will do the politics, basically. So he will do the maths, Ian Lavery will do the English. Um, but, um, you know, Andrew Gwynn is, is highly rated. Uh, it, it's a... Uh, it's quite an old party in terms of the activist base and the councillors are fairly old. Obviously, Julian Chowton is a retired doctor who now works as an ambulance driver, but it's a slightly older than average seat, I believe, in terms of the the demographics. And so they have done a, a, a very good ground campaign, whereas the Tories um, have been, I think, massively shot in the foot by this ridiculously ill-thought-through visit by Theresa May. Now, it makes sense because she's the most popular politician in the country, according to the polls. But you must know if you have two brain cells to rub together and you work in Downing Street, then the first thing that's going to happen when she touches down in, in Cumbria is someone's going to go, uh, what about the hospital? I also think she's the least unpopular politician in Britain rather than the most popular. I think a lot of her popularity is about, thank God we didn't get any of the others and thank God we don't have Jeremy Corbyn. I don't know, maybe I'm being overly harsh on her there, but I think that more than warmth and affection for her, people feel that she is the the best option, which is a different kind of endorsement, really, rather than there being a kind of star power when you go places, right? People feel that she's a safe pair of hands. She she reminds me of, uh, I think I've probably aired this, this line in the podcast before, when uh, people around Ed Balls were briefing against Douglas Alexander, one of them once said to me, he's not an intellectual, he just speaks slowly. And... <laughs> I, I, and, I, and I think there's something of that in Theresa May's appeal because she speaks very slowly and calmly and she's a bit immobile on her feet. People kind of think that that means that she's steady. Yeah, serious. Um, yeah. Stephen, you did say that you were going to offer your predictions for these I two I thought we seats. were all going yeah, to get on there. Mostly the, you. Because obviously half of our listeners will know what the result is so you will all oh, be able to true. laugh at yeah, us yeah you can laugh at us in real time yeah um i think i think it's really hard to tell but i think labor will inch it that's my prediction and in stoke and stoke i also think labor will win there as well so this i don't want us to be we can't all be wrong in the same way yeah that's true this Sorry. is my feeling is that that ukip have suffered a catastrophic candidate-based collapse right and therefore not been able to get any of their messaging across the tories i think performed quite strongly there so actually that's that's splitting that vote so I, I think obviously paul nuttall has been a disaster and even you know given my skepticism about whether or not candidates matter I don't think they matter that much in a positive way, but I think when your candidate lies about where he lives, well, claims, parachutes in claims to be a victim of the Hillsborough yeah. disaster, yeah, I, I think that does have a candidate effect. But I mean, I think UKIP have big problems anyway. I think places like Hanley don't want to vote for a, 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 a UKIP because they think it's the same as putting a tick on their town going, we live in a rubbish town. Um, I think UKIP's threat has always been overwritten. I actually think, because the Lib Dems are going, look, let's have a go and see if we can have a good showing, I think I think the Lib Dems will probably get about 15 16% of the vote there. I think the Tories will, will probably hold steady on their vote. I think Labour will win it. I think not only will Labour win it, 
This is my hostage to fortune. I think UKIP will finish fourth. So UKIP fourth in Stoke. Yeah. That's your, your that's a good hostage yeah. to fourth. That yeah. hostage is fully that hostage. That hostage is tied to a <laughs> railway track and the train is just <laughs> heading towards it. Um, and yeah, and I'm going to say, I'm yeah, I think I'm going to say Labour hold Copeland. Mm-hmm. Are you going to say that to you, Stephen, or are you going to be the one, the dissenting voice? No, I, so I said, not sure on podcast or in the regular series I'm updating on the website, I said, you know, we'd be able to know who'd win based on what the, the local paper had on its front page the day before, and today they're leading once again on Downing Street's uh, failure to answer questions on the hospital. And I just think that people know that they can send a message to... She's literally gone there, therefore further advertising that she is invested in the result. I, I just think then, then, then they will win it. Well, that I mean, that you know, if it, this were normal political circumstances, right? These are you know, the Tories have been in government for six years, and you know, you wouldn't expect them to, to gain a by-election. UKIP is a strange creation in some ways. So, in some ways, we what we predicted is what kind of ought to be the obvious answer, but yet it's kind of it's interesting that it's not that these are knife-edge elections. Well, this is the thing, Jeremy Corbyn and UKIP suffer from the opposite, but same thing. So UKIP always go in with all of this hype and high expectations, and then they always do worse than we expected them to do, but mainly based on what we expected them to do because they were so buoyant. Mm. And then Labour is the opposite. Everyone says, oh, Jeremy Corbyn's going to lose all these seats because he's the worst Labour leader ever. And then when he wins them, everyone's like, wow, OK, he's not doing too badly. Actually, this should be he should be able to win Copeland. Well, uh, we, there's, those hostages are now on the on the railway tracks and yeah, we'll come and hopefully the Nushmobile will be heading off to pastures <laughs> new very time soon. New Statesman podcast is hosted by me, Helen Lewis, and my co-presenter, Stephen Bush. Why not sign up to Stephen Bush's morning email? After all, you've heard enough about it in this podcast. Simply Google Stephen's name and then maybe, you know, click on a few of the links that you find. Who knows what you'll find there. The New Statesman podcast, meanwhile, is edited by James Shield and our theme music is from the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.